back to the show. I am super excited for today's guest. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here, man. Thanks for having me. You bet. So, for the uninitiated, for the people who don't know, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> uh, I am the president and founder of a boutique company, fast-growing company called Show Imaging. And uh, what do I do? I have the time of my life. Uh, I uh, started this company in my garage about 10 years ago. We are a, a full-scale entertainment company, really an experiential company. So we love to tell stories and create experiences for people. Everything from providing the sound, light, and video equipment to custom scenery to videographers to storytellers to script writers, you name it. We like to fill the cracks and be kind of everything if we can be so that we can create kind of a great, unique experience from start to finish. So. You're covering a lot of stuff there. I, I know you from, I was working at a conference and I was brought in uh, by the executive team to help them with their speeches and their physical presence on stage. And I met you and I met your team. Super, everyone was super, super cool. Super great experience. So we got to know each other over the years. And I thought you were a conference company and you show up with the, with the gear and build it up. But as I got to know you, I learned it was so much more. So. You covered a lot of stuff there, but what does show imaging do? Like, is it primarily concerts? Is it conferences? Is it TV? Is it film? Like, what is it? I think that's actually one of the most exciting things about us is we do a little bit of all of it. And there's always that danger of you do too many things and you do them all poorly. We have sort of over the, over the years, we add things kind of one at a time as they become natural which, and, and allow ourselves to become experts in that sort of area. Uh, if I really had to divide it up, I would say about a third of the company is, is music. Um, music is in our soul. I love music. I know you love music. We've talked a lot about it over the years. So we do a lot of sort of small and mid-side festivals and concerts, and, and that sort of feeds our soul. As we've learned, it's not the most profitable of a business, and so we do uh, sort of the next third uh, are you know, business meetings like you and I did, mostly gear, mostly um, trying to help do graphics to... To, we really try to help our customers not just put two screens in a room and put PowerPoint up. Like if we never used PowerPoint again, it would make me really happy even though that's our business. Um, we really like to challenge our customers just to say, let's take two steps back. What are you really trying to say here? The third silo, if you would, is, is kind of a mix between experiential um, and university work. So we do huge commencement ceremonies. We do galas at universities, fundraisers. Um, we do a ton of experiential things, like at Coachella, we did this really cool thing for Lays, where we did a, a video mapping in this small domed tent where people came in and tried fancy, you know, truffle chips from Lays, and like the little chip danced on it, danced around the plate, and they brought out the one, <laughs> the one truffle chip, and we're in Coachella in the middle middle of a dirt parking lot eating truffle Lays, but like you know, those are those are hugely interesting out there, like their photo op was attractive. And they said, we want a gold tractor. And so literally one of our team found a gold, found a, an old tractor, a working tractor, went and paid $5,000 for this old vintage tractor. We shipped it down to our shop. We, we painted it sparkly gold, like all of it, the carburetor, everything. And we rolled it in and it's like, that's just the kind of stuff we do. Like, I, it's really fun to, to challenge ourselves to go do anything. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny that you're, as you're talking about this because for someone who, let's say, likes music and goes to concerts and goes to festivals, or people who've been to conferences, or someone who's like, I don't know, like graduating university, I'd say very few people probably think a lot about the production side of it, 
like, you know, how to do the stage management, how to, you know, where does all this equipment come come from? Like, how do you get the, how do you get good sound? But even like more of like the creative side of it, it's like how do you make a statement? How do you how do you communicate? And in fact, I think not in fact, but like I'd say conceptually, people do think about it. They're like, oh, just some company comes and like sets up everything up and that's it. But it's way more than that. So from like the musical side, if you think about a concert, of course there's the bands that like come up and provide the entertainment, but like the look, the feel, like the positioning, like the experience of being in that place has a lot to do with what you're coming to us, right? Oh, 100%. There's five band members on stage, you know, for Oasis goes on tour. There's... I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I mean, if you think about, uh, I remember going to my first concert, I, my parents took me to see John Denver at the Universal Amphitheater, which is now Universal Studios LA, it's gone. And from that day, I remember that night, Vividly, I was four or five, but I still remember the experience of walking in and looking at all that, and I started going to concerts. Different than you who went through the SoCal punk scene, but like I sort of followed my parents with Simon and Garfunkel and Barry Manilow and Neil Diamond, but I would go to those shows, and it wasn't until later in life that I realized a tour that shows up at a sports arena, I think you're going to go to Staples, they load those shows in that morning. Like all that stuff unloads, they put it up all day, they do the show, they take it down, and they go to the next city the next day. It is insane. There are hundreds of people that will unload all these trucks, and it's not just the physical, it's back to the creative side. Our world is a little different than the touring world. We've chosen to stay out of the touring world, partially because if you're not a big touring company, it's hard to, it's hard to be competitive. Also, we really enjoy the, I get to do something new every single day. And sure, I work in a lot of the same venues, but my favorite thing to do, we do a festival in Montana we were talking about before we went on air, and we've been able to create an entire music festival on a working ranch, working 300-acre ranch in, in Whitefish, Montana. And I'll tell you what, it's the coolest thing we've ever done. And I love working in non-traditional spaces. Give me a, a, a blank canvas and let us create, and that's when show imaging does their best work. So that creative side of this is one I want to unpack because again, if you go into space, the space is the space. And if you go there on a, on a Tuesday or if you go in there on a Thursday, if nothing has happened, if no one's set something up, it's just a space. Right. It's the people who come in to do something with it. They take that space that is the same, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. They take it and they give it a sense of like place and like experience. So how do how did you even learn how to do this or start even going down that path where you built like an understanding of this? I, I think I was really lucky. Um, I went to UC San Diego and the first thing my family said was, don't get a job, just go study. So what, what does Jack ask me to do? I get a job on day one. Day one, I get a job for $10 an hour working at the student center. I had done a little you know, high school acting and tinkering, but I got a job at the, at the student center as a sound tech. I didn't know a microphone from a park hand, but I knew that I wanted to work on this crew. And so from that, um, I met, there was an old festival in San Diego called San Diego Street Scene. And it was an independent um, guy that sort of had built this festival. He closed all the streets of downtown. It was really long before Coachella and all the sort of festivals became so in vogue. And so I, I was mixing sound on it, and then I met the production manager, and they hired me to come in. And within the first year, I was like marking up contracts for, you know, literally anybody. They were just, whatever work I was willing to take, they gave me. And so within a year, I became the director of entertainment, 
23. I had zero business doing the job, but I, I could do whatever I wanted to. And I had an insatiable desire to, to learn the industry because I was fascinated by it. I mean, I'm a, first of all, I'm a fan of the music. I listen to music constantly. Those that know me, I always have music on in my office, in my car, wherever I am. If I go out of town, I, if, my, if there's a, an act that I want to see, I'll go see an act before I go do anything else. Um, and so at the time, to be a fan and working in the space and working in a downtown environment that was changing, not just every year, but every day. You know, we, we'd come out where we thought we were gonna put a stage and realize that there was construction that was starting that day that we didn't know about. And so it built in me two, I think, really important skills that I'm really trying to make sure that we continue to employ as a company. One is, I think my secret sauce is troubleshooting. I mean, I, I've, I have some of the, my favorite troubleshooting stories are truly what set me aside as a younger person because it gave me an opportunity to show people that in an industry that will always have failure, right? We're humans, people make mistakes. Technology, as Mike proved to us as we started today, technology doesn't always work with us. And so if you have a live show where you can't go back, it's all about how you're gonna solve the problem safely and keep people safe. And so I think I was lucky because there were a lot of things we weren't doing, you know, in the in the '90s, right? Safety was important, but it wasn't the number one thing, right? We were we we were trying to get the show off the ground, and so there was there was a lot of people that really felt like we were an infallible group of people that we could do no wrong. That entertainment was different. Back to the creative side, I realized that if I if I asked or just tried to do things, that people tend to reward you if you're willing to take a chance, like a reasonable risk to do something. And so I really learned to love space planning at that point. What do I do with this parking lot? Which way do I point the stage? Is it the sun gonna hit the performer? Is the sun gonna hit the crowd? How are we gonna get people in and out? I realized that the more I played with it and learned that over time, it was just a skill that I honed. Um, it's a skill that I really like about myself. I walk into a room and I immediately can say, where's the stage go? Where's the bar go? Where's the, my mind starts going crazy. It's like the, the matrix. I just look at the room and I'm like, it's so exciting. And I, I think other people think it's ridiculous, but um, it served me well. I don't know. I don't think it's ridiculous. So, <laughs> you know, as we've talked about, I came up touring in bands a lot. And for anyone who's toured in a band before, they probably have some, they're trying for it. <laughs> but when we're, we talk about packing the, the trailer. It's like what we call Van oh, Tetris. Yeah. You know, so Van Tetris. Like Van Tetris. <laughs> and I, I like, Van Tetris is just something about packing a van or a trailer, right? Where it's like, oh my god! But it's also like gone in my personal life, where like Monica and I, like, like she'll pack the dishwasher a certain way, and I'll come in and be like, no, no, I, can't I could have got two more glasses in there. <laughs> I'll start up packing it, and, and she can be like, are you unpacking the dishwasher? I'm like, I can't take it. I can get like one more glass or two more glasses in there, and uh, no, so I, I get it, like. I, I just think about it like going to a show is, is from this perspective it's kind of a neat idea for me because again like a space is a space and it's going to be that no matter what until someone comes in and envisions how you can use that space in a different way and for me I think as like a music fan I certainly haven't ever really had the recognition of how important a, like a production company would be in creating that experience so that the band can get up and do their thing. Because the band in a live show is just one part of it when all of the other stuff is the rest. It, it's kind of a funny thing. I always joke, 
you know, the audio engineer especially, right? Almost never do you hear the words, man, the sound was just great tonight. Like the lights can be great, the pyro can be exciting, the show can be great. But like the audio engineer and the rigger and the staging guy or gal, they're just expected to do their job. Not a lot of, not a lot of, you know, great, great feedback for that. But boy, when the audio goes out, it's a bad day for the audio engineer. And so your, your point is well taken. I mean, I think for us, even though we all enjoy the kudos of a great show, the one thing about the, the sort of the backstage, the creative and all that, we don't do it because we're looking for the kudos. I think for me anyway, we do it because we want to be a part of something that's really special. We rent gear not because of that, that's what excites us. I mean, the last company I worked for before starting show imaging, they were, they were a gear rental company. And it was great for me because I got to learn the business side of it. But what I realized when I left that company was that I didn't want to rent things for a living. I didn't want to be a commodities broker. And so when we started show imaging, I'm, anybody who's listening to this that knows me will quote me, we will never own gear. I do not want to own gear because I didn't want to be like that company. And so the irony is we have 150,000 square feet of warehouse across the country now filled with speakers and gear. And so everybody, like when I, when I say something, the kiss of death is if I say we're never going to do something, there are a number of cases where we've just turned around and done it. So just, <laughs> acknowledge, just acknowledge, acknowledge, we're never going to own video projectors. We have hundreds of them now. Like, like there's a list of things. But I think the one thing that I, I think we did really well that we're continuing to do well is the gear is a mechanism to drive revenue, sure. The gear is a mechanism for us to control quality because we, we own the gear, we maintain the gear, we buy the gear that's appropriate for the job, sure. What I'm most excited about though is are the, are the creative services, the fact that, that we can rent you the giant jumbotrons, but you can get those from anybody. And you can probably get them cheaper, more cost effectively than for us. What I'm excited about is the fact that we can design the content that goes on those screens. I'm excited about the fact that we use them in a different way than most companies. I don't want to just put big rectangles up. We want to do sweeping screens with columns and triangles and whatever. We, we want to help the story get to a place where we're using all of that in, in the most creative way. And what we've found is, you know, I'm an Apple fanboy. Um, I realize that they're an imperfect company, but there's a lot of things that I think are really interesting about how the company was founded, sort of the trials and tribu tribulations. One of the things that they do so well is they control your ecosystem. And so the iPhone was brilliant. It was a brilliant piece of software or hardware. What was most inter interesting thing about it is as people adopted the iPhone, the, uh, the so said iPhone halo, people started to buy the rest of the, the rest of the hardware and they started to buy the services. And to this point where now Apple has become an indispensable part of many of our lives, those of us that are in that ecosystem. And so my goal for show imaging, if we're going to do an event with somebody, our, our desire is to make ourselves irreplaceable, not necessarily just because of the, the business case of that, but, but because if we are a part of the whole story, then we're really able to deliver a high quality story more efficiently. And that's been a great model for us. And it's, we don't have a tremendous amount of competition. There aren't many companies out there that do all the things we do. There's lots of production companies that do it, I'm sure better than us, that have way bigger inventories than we do, but there aren't many that are doing, trying to trying to be a part of that whole ecosystem. I, I love that, and I love the willingness to say like, hey, we're never gonna do this, until you're like, oh, actually it makes sense for us to do it. 
and we'll come back to that. I want to stick with the creative side. Um, so a band goes up and plays and has hundreds or thousands of people like clapping, giving them applause, buying their t-shirts, like filming themselves, like I'm at this show. So they get that instant feedback loop, right? In that moment, they get held up as like in that, in that light for their creativity. What's the psychology of people who are actually inherently creative and are, are in a creative pursuit, but their creativity isn't being actively acknowledged by anyone? Uh, I'll speak for myself because I don't want to speak for my team, but I think that's probably similar. I get goosebumps if, if I'm even at a show. If we just provided the speakers, I get goosebumps when there's, you know, when there's excitement over that. We do this really cool festival. We've done 15 or 16 of them in San Diego down on the water called Cross Festival. It's a it's a adult electronic, basically day party. Saturday, Sunday, down the water, beautiful park, right on the right on the San Diego Harbor. Uh, about two weeks ago, we were on a weekly call with, with our our partner, our customer, and they said, "Hey, just want you to know, DJ Magazine came out with the top 100 festivals in the whole world. Cross was number 36. Amazing. They're, we didn't even know that, that we were on there. He says, more importantly, we were sixth in the U.S." ahead of Hard Summer Night and a bunch of the majors. More important than that, we were number two out of independent, Burning Man being the only one in front of us. This is a fairly small, you know, 20,000 person festival. We do it twice a year. It's really cool. These, this, this group that we work with prides themselves in high quality, high quality audio, video, lighting, high quality scenery. We, it's all great banners and greens and everything. It's just a great festival. and. I, I got goosebumps and you know we don't book it we don't market it we work really hard we manage the festival we manage the security we manage the ticketing all the tech all we pull all the permits like we're a really important part of that ecosystem show imaging's name is not on that at all but i'll tell you what when we posted we have a, a client feedback channel on our slack and we posted it and it just immediately the reactions were amazing and even people talking about how how great it is to be a part of that that's, that's our job. I mean, and, and I think the fact that it's not just the creatives, back to the staging person and the rigging, nobody really cares about how the stuff's in the air, they just want the stuff to be in the air. I think we all take pride in that. It's a very pure creative pursuit, and it reminds me of like, so if a painter paints a painting, and it's a celebrated painting, it's like, wow, that painting's amazing, and the painter's amazing. But the person who made the paint, and if it wasn't just like some huge manufacturer who's making the paint, but someone who like actually made like a paint that was like a unique color or a unique combination, no one's like, oh, there's that blue that like, you know, this person made. It's someone who's like outside of the limelight, but who's created something that they poured their heart and soul on that they can see as a part of someone else's creative uh, output that that's celebrated. Or uh, in tattooing, like, you know, there's a lot of people who are like tattoo artists or just people associated with the industry who make colors. So like I've got like colors that are like pounded in my skin that some person just made. And of course there's big companies that make it, but there's people who make uh, uh, colors or small companies, like artisan companies basically. And that like, oh, we can't get that red anymore. They don't make that red anymore. And like, you don't know that person's name, but they know they're part of the process yeah. or someone who makes like tattoo guns, anything like that where it's like, you are an inseparable part of someone else's creative output and that person or that band or whatever 
they get the accolades for doing this thing, but they couldn't have done it without all of the work with the people behind the scene who are also creative. But the fact that they can just make that happen is enough for them. It's not the being on stage and getting the accolades. It's the fact that they they could be the shoulders upon which the, those creative people stand on. What? It's, it's just like a fascinating it's, psychology. It's, it's fascinating. It's like, you know, I, I interned in the White House in college thinking I was going to go be a, a politician. Like I, I thought for sure. I'm going to go to law school. I was really into um, policy and sort of, I don't know, I just thought that was my direction. And then I had, this, I had this job. You interned at the White House? Yes. Who was the president of the time? Bush Sr. Did you see some shit? Uh, not really. <laughs> I, I will say, I will say that, uh... We gotta put this by on a paywall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll talk after. It was a great experience. I also left DC thinking, why would I want to do this? Sure. Like it's, it's crazy. Amazing experience that almost nobody gets, gets the opportunity to do. But I came home and what I realized was that I was starting to understand that I could make a living in entertainment. So imagine, you know, no family wants their kid to call after undergrad and say, by the way, I'm taking a year off. What are you going to do? I'm, I'm gonna, I went on tour with a USO band in Japan. I made $300 a week, but I got the time of my life. And it dawned upon me right away that I had two choices. I could go become a lawyer and make people's lives miserable and probably make a ton of money. I could stay in the industry and try to figure out where I wanted to go and make people happy because everything that I was a part of up until that point, the cheering of the band, even though I wasn't on stage, just the, the, the part of it that, that I was doing at that time, I was the stage hand or I was you know, pushing a speaker on stage. Like I didn't have a big role, but I still felt like if I stayed here, I would make people happy for the rest of my life. And it was a very willful decision. Um, and one that I'm really proud of because I don't know that I had the confidence. I certainly never saw show imaging. Even when I left my last company, I didn't leave thinking, I'm gonna go start the competition. You know, we, we inevitably bought the company that I left. That was never the plan. I mean, it's just sort of, as we've, as we've built and sort of saw opportunity, um, but we're still like, still that, that goal of bringing joy to people's lives and being kind in how we treat each other and kind in how we treat the band and even choosing our customers that way. It, it's not an industry that's known for that. And so there's been a great opportunity for a company like us just to sort of, well, without a lot of competition, sort of walk in the door and say, yeah, we can do this, we can play, we can play at this level. Um, and, and bring even a business meeting, like that's part of it. It's like, listen, we can put two screens up, you can put your boring ass PowerPoint presentation up there, or you can let us help you, very similar to what you do when you're coaching, you can let us help you do something that captivates your sales team and helps you get them to do something. Because if not, we're gonna sit in this ballroom for two days and we're gonna listen to the same motivational speaker that we hear, like there's 20 of them out there, we've all heard them. So, you know, how do we challenge ourselves to do more than that? That's the, the, the gear is just a mechanism to do that. Sometimes we don't need video screens. Sometimes all we need is a flip chart. Yeah. Well, so I, I love that you just went there because we spent a lot of time talking about something that we both love, <laughs> all the music side. But the other two sides, you said like, we kind of play mostly in these three areas. Is there, is there a big difference for you from approach, satisfaction, like barriers, if you're doing music or if you're doing conferences or if you're doing kind of like big commencement ceremonies or anything like that? There is, I mean, there's a similar, I'm nervous before every show. 
and nobody knows that I exist, right? Like, I can't imagine what you feel when you're on stage. I know that when I'm off to the side of the stage, I live in constant fear, not, not that we're gonna do something wrong, but things fail, right? When the screen flickers or the, our industry, it's fascinating, right? Like they, they, they say it's not rocket science. I will tell you that in entertainment and in business meetings and in experiential where these brands are spending sometimes millions of dollars to make sure people taste that one Lay's potato chip with truffle on it, that if there's a failure, their expectation is that there is no failure. And so it's my job to make sure, A, that they understand we're going to be the best at responding to any potential thing that might happen because something always happens. But I'm still nervous. You know, I'm nervous for that time where there's something that we can't fix. Um, I will say that the corporate side of it, where the dollars are bigger, the there seems to be less tolerance for, for that. One of the struggles that we have in the business side right now is the business uh, the sort of the conferences and things like that have never really cared about us. They've never really cared about our staff. They were perfectly happy to let the CEO come in at midnight to do his rehearsal because he was off at reception, knowing that we had to be up at five in the morning to get back in the room. We don't have a lot of tolerance for that anymore. I don't have a lot of tolerance for that. And sort of this has been a really interesting process for us to try to educate our customers. In the old days, it was cash, right? The crew would go into double time and when the money was there, they didn't care. And so what we taught them was that it was okay because they were buying their way out of it. Now, not so much. It's not even about money anymore. It's just about being taking care of each other. Um, that's a, it's a very different world now, certainly post-COVID, as we sort of figure out how to make sure that we're taking care of our, our folks because we all sort of took that two years off and learned, hmm, maybe I don't want to work six 20-hour days in a row. Maybe, maybe the money's not that important to me because I didn't get to see my family. And now after spending two years with them in COVID, I realized I really want to be home on weekends. And so the industry is really starting to shape that, right? Festivals a couple days, we're doing a one-off, but these seven, eight, nine, 10 day meetings where we're sending someone to a ballroom in you know, the middle of Orlando, um, it's we're really having to figure out how to do that. Um, and I don't know that we're there yet. Yeah, you know, to speak, would you mind if I had my experience? Of course. Um, when I work conferences, which I do very rarely now, I have a team who goes out and does it. Um, if I'm going to like some, if let's say uh, Las Vegas, where, where we both work together in yeah. Las Vegas, and people are like, oh man, it's so cool, you get to go to Las Vegas for like yeah. a week and all expenses paid. I'm like, oh yeah, so I get to go to my hotel room, which is probably pretty nice, but when I'm there, I'm just like asleep or working on someone else's notes. It takes 30 minutes to get from my hotel room down to the ballroom in the same hotel, but go on. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm in anxiety-filled meetings with people because they're unprepared. Not because they're not great people. In fact, they're wonderful people, wonderful professionals, but they're not professional speakers. They're like, let's say a sales leader or an R&D leader. Whatever their, their, their thing is, is that a few times a year they need to speak in front of 100 or 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 people. They don't know how to prep, both practically prep, but psychologically prep to be on a stage and do it. And they do what most people, what myself do, is like avoid it, it's like do it last minute. <laughs> and they show up last minute and basically say, I'm unprepared, save me. And as I'm saying this, like anyone who have worked with you, it's like it worked in this scenario. I totally, I get it, I respect you, I admire you. I know what it's like, but being on my, uh, on, I would say our side of it is like, specific to dealing with people in conferences it's not just for me it's not just about like stand here say this it's about the whole psychology of like 
you have a thousand people or two thousand people who have been in dozens and dozens of these things and they don't want to sit there and listen to you speak but they also want to sit there and listen to you speak if you can speak from your heart if you can speak well if you can share your ideas in a compelling way if you've got a story that matters to them and it's like I think for most people who are the audiences at conferences what they've got coming with them is dozens of bad conference experiences and they're like I don't want to sit in this seat but what they also have is like well this person around the stage I do respect them I do want to hear them I want to give them a chance, but the window that you have to get them, to make them feel this is going to be okay, is five minutes. And if you blow it in that five minutes, they're like, all right, this is my 33rd conference. It sucks. I'm going to fill this bucket right now. So it seems probably, like, from my perspective, it seems like it could be a lot different from music in the sense of, like, musicians are musicians. That's what they do. They show up kind of, like, gig ready in a lot of ways, whereas, like, a lot of speakers at conferences aren't necessarily professional speakers. Well, th- think about it. Uh, there's two parts to that. Mus- music, traditionally, as a, as a fan, you're paying or not paying, but you're choosing to go, right? You're, you're, unless, you're, unless your friend's like, yeah, come check this band out, right? But like, you're choosing to go, we're going to go have dinner, you know, some drinks or not, like whatever, I'm going to go have, I'm deciding to go have a great time. 99% of the like, sales meetings or sales kickoffs, yes, I think you may want to go, maybe for the wrong reasons. Oh yeah, I'm gonna go to Orlando, it'll be fun. I'm gonna see my buddy from Tennessee that I don't get to see because I'm based in California. And then, oh yeah, do I have to go slip through all that? So it's a, it's a harder sell, I think, because, yeah. and you're right, most of these people are not, the leaders are not necessarily born speakers. This is new for me, you know, like we were, we were, we were coaching this morning <laughs> for my town hall tomorrow, so like I hear you be the last minute true, and I'm, I'm, I really enjoy public speaking. I'm much more nervous about it than I think I'm going to be, and then usually I settle in, but I have, I have a ton to learn, and what's been interesting about it is it's helping me in how we sell, quite honestly, as I learn sort of what it means to, to be on stage and sort of to be coached and to sort of really learn what it means to be a leader. I think that if, if I can continue to do that, our leadership team can continue to do that, it will really help continue the showmanship story of what we bring to the table. It doesn't mean that we're gonna replace what Cadence does, but I also think that like together, there's a really interesting concept of coming to the table and not just putting back to the PowerPoint. Like we can make the video projector work and we can make it shine on the screen, but that's that's not the company that we're in. We're not really all that interested in doing those shows, quite honestly. Again, two things that stand out to me about show imaging is like the creative side of it. Which really, until we got to know each other, I was just like, totally, it's not, it's not that I was like, but why would you know? I wouldn't even think of it. I wouldn't even think to think about it. It's like so many things that like in your life, you're like, oh, I wouldn't even think about that. So the creative side of it, but also, especially as we've worked together over the years, like you actually care that people sitting in the audience, but also on stage have a good experience. I know most people care, but it's like, no, you actually care about it. And it's so compelling to me to see, like, where do people find, like, how do people become passionate about this versus, like, anything else in life? And you're so passionate about it, and you built such a cool company. But going back to conferences, like, if someone's like, hey, man, the rest of your life, you're going to go to, like, five conferences a year, spend a week at each of them, I'm like, check, I check out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. 
Or it could be like, hey, you're going to go to five conferences a year. It's going to be with people who are like, who want to be good presenters and they want to speak well. And you're going to partner with a company who's going to help all of that kind of stuff happen. It's the difference between having five mini disasters that you have to manage a year versus like, oh, you're bringing like real preparedness and eagerness. You want to do this. And my job now is just to take you from good to great in a few days. I love that. Versus, okay, there's a disaster that we're trying to avoid. And I've had probably 70% this is a disaster we're trying to avoid and 30% you want to go from good to great. You seem to be in the business more and more so, especially as, as the company gets more successful of kind of picking and choosing instead of the terms of we're not really going to deal with the disasters. We only want to deal with the people who want to go from good to great. Yeah. And it's hard because I, I don't want to be arrogant. Like, it's not about arrogance. It's about we're not going to be the cheapest. And like we're we're sort of trying to figure that out, just like everybody else is, like what the market will bear in a in a, in a really challenging time. But more than the money, if we're gonna go work our butts off, let's work with fun people. Let's work with people that want to do this. Let's work with people that are willing to make an investment. You know what I've tried to teach the sales team is, we're not gonna do every show, and there's plenty of work out there for all of us right now. There there really is there's a lot. There's more work that we can handle. So let's work with brands that want to invest in what they're doing. Let's choose those. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to take a show that doesn't pay us enough because maybe they're really cool people and we like them and they don't have enough money to put into it. We're going to help grow them as a brand. But it's a it's an enviable place, I think, for us to be. And I think it's probably the, the, something that gives me a lot of confidence that we're on the right track because those companies exist and they're coming to us and they're staying with us. And we're working with some of the absolute top brands in the world right now. And for a 10-year-old company that started in my garage with a handful of iPads, that's a pretty amazing place to be. Yeah. Um, well, it's a good segue into it. Let's talk about the starting of the company. Because <laughs> Show Imaging is 200 people now, right? Yeah. So tell us about the beginnings. like, And not just like, this is how it started. Where did the initial idea even come from? Like the kernel of the idea? It's... Um, you know, I talked about the San Diego street scene earlier. The, the last year I did it, Tool played. And if you've never been to a Tool show, it's a, it's a Maynard, the front man, is, is a pretty amazing guy. And it was Tool right as Tool was getting giant. And the band, I think it was the Yeah that was supposed to play before Tool and they ended up canceling. And so the crowd, kind of went somewhere else and then right about the time Tool was supposed to come on, literally the entire you know, 35,000 people went to the Tool stage and someone got pushed down in the crowd and everything had to stop. And it was a, it was a really challenging moment for me because you know everybody got sued and I got sucked into days and days of deposition. And you know, I'm still a fairly young guy at the time. And it was, for me, it was the asteroid strike moment of I have a lot to learn. And it wasn't that anybody did anything wrong. It was, it was an unfortunate, you know, it was just an unfortunate bunch of things happened that led to a, the crowd moving. And so I, the first thing I did is I went and started showmaging just as a name to incorporate, to protect myself because I was nervous. Um, and then that sort of festered for a while. When I left, uh, MSI was the company that I was, was at at the time. And when I left MSI, my intent was, let's, I'm just going to go freelance, I'm going to go design, I'm going to do what I love, I'm going to design shows, I'll be a technical director, it's plenty of work, I had plenty of customers, 
And so I was busy right away. And so I hired uh, a guy named Mark Lopez, who's still with me. We met at a coffee shop. Literally, we had bought, prior to hiring Mark, I had like 20 iPads that we were renting Chevy for um, basically propaganda stands. And we had custom made, you know, custom made these little frames for them. And we had a couple TVs and we had a confetti cannon. Like it was like, it was garage sale stuff. We had just a bunch of crap. And it was just in my garage. And I had met Mark at, uh, he was a student at the University of San Diego, a marketing student, but he was on the, the programming board there. And we were helping them with their concerts. And so I interviewed him in a coffee shop and did that two or three times. And finally on the third one, I said, all right, well, you want to do this? Fam- another famous Steve saying, I don't think I have enough work for you, but like, we'll figure this out. <laughs> you can see where this story is going. <laughs> pretty, pretty immediately, we had, we had enough work for both of us. And, you know, Mark, Mark, to his credit, he didn't really know the difference between a microphone and a video switcher. And so, you know, like we bought a couple things and we were doing a show at, at, back at UC San Diego. And I, I, just, I just want to pause for a second. So you, when we say amount of a coffee shop, just like, oh, like chance meeting? No, I called, sorry, I called him and I said, this oh, is like... So somebody you knew? I had met him at the university, okay. and he had he had inquired about what Shonjin was. Like. I don't think he knew. He knew we didn't have a lot of stuff, but he saw. I think he saw an opportunity to 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 help me. But he didn't have a background in anything. Not really. He was on the program board, but he didn't know technical or he was a marketing major. Do people need to have a background to work in Shonjin? No. If you're a nice human being and you have desire. We hire nice people first. If you go to our website and try to apply, it lists some things that we're always hiring for, but when you actually get to the application, nowhere in there does it say what you want to do. Do you mind advertising that about Cadence? Please. Almost every single person that's hired at Cadence, outside of like the coaches, um, are someone who had no background in anything in the industry. And I'm a firm believer of hire the person and then and then teach the skill or, or let them figure out the skill. In fact, our, our leader of marketing, who's I think just one of the best people and professionals I've ever met, uh, Tammy, um, uh, was is an amazing painter, incredible painter, and also was was working like a, was working in a production company. I forget what she was. She was working in a production company, of like uh, basically sort of an admin, sort of a creative space. And when she came to the company, I was like, I'm just going to make you the marketer. And she was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm like, we'll figure it out. Yeah. And over the years, did and has totally transformed everything. And for me, what you just said is like you hire the person. And then if you've got the time and the bandwidth and the space to let that happen, which I think a lot of companies actually do, let great people figure out the best way to do the job that, they've, that they're taking on and, and lead them through it. But given that space, I've had the best results in that. The times where I've hired people who are like super established in what they do and bring them in, I'm not going to say it's never worked out, but it's been like more difficult because it's like, well, yeah, but I don't know if that one way that you're talking about is going to work for this company. And then it's like you get that weird friction where it's like, well, I'm an expert and you hired me to do this job. It's like, yeah, but there's not one right way but the one thing that I, I love and I wanted to highlight this from, from your story and from show imaging is like you don't have to have a background or be an expert to have a cool job in an interesting company and hire for the person and their ability their ability and willingness to learn it, it also accentuates something that's really cool about our company is it's not we're not all technicians right we have a creative path we have a full festival concert event management department right 
we have a full creative department, we have a full scene shop, we have a metal shop, a wood shop, we just bought a CNC router. Like you, I, I like to remind people when I talk about show imaging, my desire is that I, show imaging is for the is for the for the staff, right? Like it's not for the customer. Yeah. And that's a I think I think every company should believe that. I don't know that every company does believe that. But I believe if, if we if we build this company tr and it's truly for its people, that the people will do great things for the customer. With all that, we're trying to create careers, not jobs. And so, you know, it's a great example. Um, one of my friends, Tiffany, works for the company. She worked at uh, the backstage caterer, came on board, I don't know, six or seven years ago. She came on as the staffing manager. And she hated it. I mean, it is a thankless, it's, it's among the most important jobs. It's a thankless job. And she just didn't. It just wasn't for her. And she sort of, it took her a while to sort of navigate through a few jobs until she came to the events department and she now is, she runs all of our events department. And it's one of my favorite stories because it exemplifies the, the truth that if you're in an apartment that's not working for you and you truly love the company, you still want to be here, we'll find a place for you. Right? Like we're, you can't, I believe you, if you're not a kind person, we're not going to teach you to be kind. And so if you're, even if you're the best audio engineer on the planet, but you're a jerk, you're going to do so much more damage, so much more damage, and so, and it's it's kind of interesting. It's sort of right now, it sort of works itself out. Every once in a while, we we think we've got somebody, and they come on board, and they don't they don't last very long. And I I think what's happening is they just they know they don't fit, and it's not infallible. Like we all have you know we all have bad days, and I certainly get cranky. There's this sort of joke that indignant Steve comes out sometimes, and. I'm learning and trying to be better about that, but by and large, it really is a, it's a fantastic group of people that really do support each other. And so the people that, that don't fit, just they realize they're just like, this is too touchy-feely for me or whatever it is, they just sort of go on. Okay, let's go back to the story though. So you hire Mark, you're like, I don't know if I have enough work for you, boom, it blows up, you have a ton of work. And then what happens? I don't know if it, if it boom, blew up or not, I think, there was another sort of asteroid strike moment. Still, we're, the plan was not to buy gear. We were buying little things, right, that, that like, were gonna help us. We rented an LED wall, like a jumbotron, for a, you know, a show at the university from a, from a local company that we'd never worked with before. No problem, the price was right, we could make a couple bucks off it. Showed up, looked fine. Owner of the company, I realized, had stayed, I thought, just good customer service, maybe get to know us handed his business card to all my customers. Like they'd walk out of their office, he'd hand them a business card. And I was like, just even talking about it, I had this visceral response to it. Like I was blown away. I couldn't fathom, I couldn't fathom doing that to somebody else. And so like I, it was this moment I looked at Mark and our sort of industry trade show is called LD, one of them is called LDI and it was in Vegas a couple of weeks after I said, we're going to LDI. This is great, I always wanted to go. He says, why are we going to LDI? I said, we're gonna go buy another deal. This indignant Steve come out, this is how I'm gonna solve it. I'll show you. You know nothing about LED walls. Flew, flew to Vegas, kind of checked them all out, didn't really know what we were looking for. Met a guy that owns a company in Orange County that I sort of befriended and bought an LED wall off the show floor. He goes, Great, we'll do that in three months. We don't really think about the ramifications of what this means. By this point, our garages are both full, and it's, it's full of stupid stuff like ice chests and maybe have a couple TVs and enough stuff to where we don't really have room for anything. And Mark calls me one day and he goes, hey, good news, the LED wall's here. I said, great, are we gonna put it in your garage or mine? He's like, 
um, I don't think you quite understand how many cases this is. <laughs> He's like, there's a semi in front of my house in Claremont right now. <laughs> I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> so, so we get a storage container and we, he and I, no stage hands, roll it all into the storage container and close it. And I <laughs> look at him sheepishly and I guess, I guess we need to go find a building. And so I logged on to uh, LoopNet as a commercial real estate app and I found a 5,000 square foot building, which you know, we'll never fill this. And I, I email from the website, you know, the, to the broker, can I go look at this building? He calls me right away. Uh, still, still our corporate brokers now. Uh, and he said, you want to go look at buildings today? And I said, oh man, shorts and a dirty t-shirt. I just unloaded a truck. He's like, no problem, let's go look at some buildings. And that's another story, right? Because I've created this great relationship with them where we've been able to invest in all of our own buildings to keep the money in the company. Um, the joke of it though is, is we looked at that 5,000 square foot building and ended up, not we couldn't get it, we ended up buying a 12,000 square foot building, which just like, we're never gonna buy a gear, we're never gonna fill this building. Like maybe we can lease it to someone else and inevitably, you know, a year later the building was full. We bought another building next door and then another, and you know, now it's expanded into six buildings. And what year did it start? That was 2014. Okay. So it took, I left MSI in, I think, 2011. So it sort of took a couple of years to, to really turn into stuff. There's kind of another funny story. It was actually a, it was actually a, a, a BD show uh, in Lake Tahoe. We, that was when we really made our first investment in speakers and lights and things like that. And so Elliot Carroll, who was an audio engineer for us at the time, is now um, oversees our whole audio department. He walked into the room and we had just unloaded the truck and literally everything was in a cardboard box, like nothing was in a road case. He's like, Jesus, Steve, did you buy everything for the show? <laughs> There's this moment of like, where are the clamps? Where are the, like, we, like we were having cable FedEx stuff there. I mean, it was really like, okay, if we're gonna be a company, I guess we have to decide to do this. So, it was like moments like that we like to fondly reminisce after. But I mean, it, it was really, from that point on, the growth was just this side of sustainable and it was fun. You know, one of the things like we don't borrow, borrow we borrow money for the buildings, but we don't borrow money by gear. So we were using, we've used cash to buy things. And part of the strategy of that is I'm the son of a banker. And like, I remember going to Security Pacific Bank with my little blue savings book and depositing money. So my mentality, I'm not risk averse. I and mean, I actually think I'm pretty, I've been pretty wise with where we've taken risk. But the one thing certainly going into COVID is we really tried to control our debt. And so that kept us from getting too big too fast. That's challenging right now, but. So the company grew by you just being like, whatever, I'm just going to do this. And while maybe you weren't taking a lot of risks about how you invested things, it sounds like there was a lot of risk taking, like a, a willingness to just like take a leap mm -hmm. and figure it out, figure out the landing as you go. I, I actually think, I, there may be others listening that disagree with this. I actually think it's, um, I'm generally fairly good at looking at the risk reward ratio. We've made some mistakes, like we bought this LED wall, this. 15 millimeter we thought it was gonna be great for concerts it was probably my biggest mess up because we just didn't use it but but by and large we use a lot of strategy when we decide what to invest in um, and going into COVID you know it's a story for every company 
one of the reasons that I think we were so successful, I mean, the rest of our industry, we, sh we lost literally every show in a couple weeks. Like, the, every time the phone rang, it was like, Comic-Con's canceling, the All-Star Game's canceling. Like, like, our big million-plus-dollar shows were just going away one at a time. And we had just purchased MSI. We had just moved into a new 80,000-square-foot building that we had purchased. So COVID happened six months after that. So I did what many people did is I went home and cried for a month and just said, I think, like, I don't know how we're going to survive this. And then one day, I don't know, I woke up and I didn't want to lay on the couch anymore. And I went to the office and we started brainstorming. Um, we, uh, we brought the whole company together and just said, we think the best thing to do is, is for everybody to go on unemployment right now. And we have two choices. We can spend all the money. We don't have really any debt except for the buildings, or we can preserve the money so that when this thing ends, it will end. I don't think any of us thought it was going to be as long, but but we know that we need money to operate. So our opinion is that we should store the money, and the company agreed. Um, we kept ten people on partial payroll. We built a we built a full TV studio. We didn't know anything about studios, but we converted one of our buildings to a studio, and then we realized we were going to have to get creative. So we donated a stage to the theater in North County, gave them a sound system, gave them all the gear because it allowed us to employ a few people. We went and helped build the first big drive-through vaccination site at the baseball stadium. And like, this wasn't sexy work. Like we were running the power and did the internet and rented them the generators and rented them the K-rail for the cars to drive through. Like none of it was sexy, but we had three full-time people down there for that whole, the whole time that was open. And we were a part of something that was really drove a lot of pride because think about what was happening at that point. We were a part of, again, bringing joy. I don't know if it was bringing joy to people's lives, but we were bringing something that was really positive. And so that really kind of got us excited because we, everybody was willing to do something. Lighting people became studio managers. Audio people became generator techs at the, at the vaccination site. And so what you saw was this company come back together and, and really allow us to, to take the time to realize how special we were as a company. So coming through the pandemic, were you able to bring everyone back that, that had taken unemployment? Yeah, there were a couple people that went other places or used it as an opportunity to part ways with a couple people, but every, every single person came back. We didn't have a single person that chose to stay on unemployment, which and was a great coup for us, I think, that people wanted to come back and work. You know, we were hearing the rumors of people, certainly in California, it was pretty lucrative. I mean, people, a lot of people were making more money on unemployment than they were with their employers. So everybody was excited to come. I mean, I believe they were excited to come back. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but. So you come back uh, after, and I say, I know we're still, still living with COVID, but as the world has opened up, Concerts, conferences, like everything is like <laughs> exploded. Well, now, yes. I mean, it was slow to come back for us, but but one of the good things, concerts came back before conferences. Trade shows still haven't really come back. CES was pretty bonkers this year, so we think that's going to pick back up. Um, so we brought everybody back and there was no work. It, it, this is a tough one for me to talk about because what I don't want to do is is be disrespectful to like COVID was really hard for millions and millions of people, right? Yeah. So it's really hard for me to say out loud, COVID was probably the best thing that happened to me personally. It was hard. Um, 
and it was probably the best thing that happened for Show Engine. And again, without being disrespectful to others, once I got up off the couch, I, I had a choice to make. Right? I was either going to try to pull the company together so that not I was going to save the company, that we could save the company, or just make the company stay alive, the company flourished. It gave us time to figure out what we wanted to be when we grew up. You know, we hadn't really talked about what our values were. We hadn't really, we had always talked about, oh, we should have a mission statement, we should have a scope, like we should do all those things. What, what COVID did right away was it gave us an opportunity to try to define, to be willful about defining who we were and who we wanted to be. I don't know that we ever would have made time for that. We were always busy, right? The shows always took precedence. And so sitting down and saying, show imaging, we desire for show imaging to be a company that is about its people, that has the culture of inclusivity and that people feel like they belong to. I always said those things out loud, but we were always too busy to do anything. And so here we had this great opportunity, really, to, to challenge ourselves, to prove it. Uh, I, I love what you're saying there because, and, and not just for show imaging, I, I'll think of, of Cades as well, or many companies that I've gotten to know, is most companies are led or or have many, many good intentioned people who really want, they don't just want the best for themselves or for their team or for their family. They really want to be part of a company that does good things for people and, and has a great culture and has good values. But you're caught up in work and you're caught up in growing your company, executing the things that you're trying to do. If your company has a big creative side, it's a creative thing. And everyone has, most companies have like initiatives or like, you know, they have groups that are like, we're going to have these programs, but they're always kind of like, they're underfunded. There's not enough time. COVID created this like great pause in society where every person had the ability and sometimes the awful opportunity to kind of look at yourself in the mirror and be like, who am I? Am I happy in my life? Am I happy in my marriage? Am I happy with my, my career? Am I happy with the company that I started? And I'll say like with Cadence, um, COVID was the biggest period of growth we ever had. Uh, companies leaned into us heavily for mental health stuff, which was a huge honor to be able to do that. Um, I took all of my therapeutic background and poured it into the company and it transformed our company. And it, it really created like hyper growth for us in a super cool way, but also like, I gotta manage this like growth now. It was, it was something that we architected things for the company that would have taken us years to do because we had to actually look at ourselves in the mirror and be like, do we want to even do this company? What's its purpose? Why are we doing it? So it sounds like show imaging was like a moment of, for COVID was a moment of deep reflection for you and for the company that you came out on the other side from transformed. Yeah, I mean, all of what you said affected me when we were, you know, just to go personal for now, like when we were talking about core values, it wasn't hard for us to come up with our with our words, right? Respect, integrity, grit, heart, teamwork. Like, it was super easy. And we took it from feedback that we were already getting. And so that sort of spilled very quickly. My problem was, you know, um, the integrity part was really challenging for me because I wasn't, I think I'm a good man. Like, I really do think I'm a good man, but I was definitely not living my best life. Like, I was in a, a marriage that um, I, I, I wasn't my best person in. And so I, I had to make a change, and that's been really challenging because I never saw myself as a person, I don't like to fail, nobody likes to fail, but I also knew 
I knew that I couldn't say out loud that we were going to be a company that was based on integrity if I didn't fix my own life. And that's been really hard. Um, it's been great because I feel really good about the journey that I'm on personally and professionally. I feel really good about the fact that I can I can look at my past and, and we'll always be imperfect, but, but actually be on a journey where I can say, yep, I wasn't my best person. And I have... Uh, I have a lot of sorrow for some things that I've done, but at the end of the day, I, I'm really proud of who I am, and I'm really proud of the fact that there was an opportunity for me to make some change and to willfully do the hard work. You know, you're a part of that. I have a team of people around me that are a part of that, and um, it's I'm very content, probably for the first time in my life, even though there's really difficult moments. And I think that Show Imaging would have been a good company if there was no COVID. I think that we are poised to be a really special, really unique company if we can stay true to what we believe. We're always going to be perfect and we're always going to strive to be better. And uh, I'm proud of that journey. I think that if we can not let it get out of control, I think that's probably the biggest fear I have is we grew 129% last year. That's not not sustainable. Absolutely. Like, it's just not sustainable. And, I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not, I try to use fear in a healthy way, right, uh, to sort of guide, guide a decision or I don't want to live, I don't want to live in fear and want to be debilitating. Um, and so how, how we're going to prevent the growth, I think it goes back to we're going to choose, we're going to choose the right customers. I think if we can continue to do that and not get blinded by, you know, this is a, a show that we're going to make a billion dollars on. Interestingly, we're going through a process right now, even I talked about it a few months ago, of it's what we're calling show, show selection. And show selection in the old paradigm was, is it profitable, is it not profitable? Show selection in the new paradigm is far more complex because sure, profit's one of those things. Are the customers nice people? Do they treat us well? Do we agree with what the company means ethically? And to what extent? because we're a company of nearly 200 people, varying, everybody has, it runs the game. Everybody in the company has a different opinion. So when do we do a show, when do we not do a show, and how do we decide? And um, That is proving to be a really, I'm, I'm proud of us because we're, we're having real conversations and we're having real dialogue about it, and we're, we're going into that discussion gently. We're a for-profit company, so at the end of the day we do I have made a promise to the to the staff of this company that I will pay their salary every every two weeks, and so it's not like we can say we're not doing anything for X, Y, and Z. So you know that's what makes the the conversation really interesting, and I'm I'm just happy we're having it. Yes. So this kind of stuff, uh, I encourage I encourage more and more businesses to get into this kind of mindset of yeah. So we we live in it capitalistic society and uh, you know people like that don't like that I have no commentary on it uh, I will say as a business owner I have a bunch of people who their lifestyle and their families and their futures depend on on having a good job and the job that and hopefully the place they work treats them well and they feel respected and all that but money's got to come in the door and I really encourage a lot of businesses especially service provider businesses to start getting dicky around what you take on and it's a, it's a tough conversation because the starting point is, okay, this is for profit, we have employees. Yes, and, and here's the yes, and. 
is that like I and we've talked about this this idea about being in the aspirational space it's like you should aspire to totally be like whatever your values are put them up we aspire to be like this and if you are like that 70% of the time 70% of the decisions that you make stick to that aspirational space awesome and if 30% of them don't it doesn't mean your aspirations fail 70% is like I don't know it's like a B minus or something it's like it's pretty good and as you get used to this rhythm of doing it, you can make that 72%, 75%, 80%. Where I feel that companies fall when they try and make um, choices about the kinds of clients they want to take on or the kinds of businesses they want to take on or even the, the kind of internal culture they want to have is when they go for absolute statements. Not aspirational statements, yeah. absolute statements. We'll never buy gear. But like when people are like, we're only going to work with people who are we feel their company does good in the world. It's like, cool. And then this thing comes along or that thing comes along. Absolute statements create absolute disaster. I think aspirational statements that you attend to, that you attempt to live by and operate on more often than you don't gives you a good ground to kind of get skilled at it. Because like anything, when you're trying to live in an aspirational way, you have to become skilled at that thing. You learn over time. Start with a 70-30 rule and get to 72, 75, 80. I think you can apply that to leadership. You can apply that to the kind of business you take on. But the absolutist kind of like, we won't do this and we will do that, doesn't make for great business decisions. And it does make for great, like, feel good in the moment statements. Yeah, like terrible long-term strategy. Well, and also, you know, furthering that, you risk alienating the part of the, the group that doesn't get Yes. Whereas being aspirational allows us the flexibility to decide as a group, or if there's something so egregious as a group, maybe we can build consensus around why we do it or, or, or we don't. And uh, you know, I think the fact that there's multi-factors now that we're looking at, it's not like we're just picking on you know, socio-political shows or whatever, you know, it's a challenge for us too, because there are lots of people that want to do lots of stuff. You know, uh, It was interesting, we, we do all the shows from the National Restaurant Association, or many of them, and I had put, this is early, probably seven or eight years ago, I had put in the calendar NRA, that we were doing an NRA show. <laughs> and you want to know how fast there were two people in my office? Like, and, and no, like, I'm not trying to make a political statement, I'm just saying, but like, it evoked emotion yeah. in two of 50 people at the time. And I was like, oh man, sorry, it's the National Restaurant Association. You tell, you're saying you don't like food? No. Oh, I bet, boss. <laughs> but but it was a, it was an early sort of, oh, Okay, like we at least have to have the discussion. That's totally. all I've asked of the team, right? Just recently, we we had a, a bit of a thing internally about like, you know, I made a decision, and then afterwards it was like, oh well, you know, I didn't feel good about about the decision you made, but I didn't want to say anything about it, and it made me feel like Ugh, I've missed a step here, where it's like, I'll make a decision and. It, it, what's good is that people trust me as, as the boss and they'll trust that I have an, I, I, like an idea but I haven't created the right kind of segue where there would be two people in my office right away where it's more like ooh I don't know it doesn't feel good and then it's an after the fact conversation um, it's not that you have to have debate and discussion about everything but people should feel that they can have debate and discussion if something's real itchy for them yeah You know, I've, we've been working on this, you've met lots of them, right? This, our senior leadership team is, um, 
I'm imperfect, but I'm really proud of the fact that we've created a place where my desire is not for someone to tell me what I want to hear. There's people that have tried that in the past. I, I'm really, and I'm sure many leaders say this, like, I really want dialogue. I'm getting better at choosing when I'm going to stand on the hill and be indignant, Steve. And, and I believe that that's as, as I get to know the team better and, and trust the fact that, that my desire for what showmanship is, is that message is being conveyed. I'm stepping away from the things that I want to be indignant about and, and really listening to the advice of others and counsel of others. It's not always like, there's, there's stuff as you all know, there's stuff where it's like, no, this is, this is the way I want to do it. Um, and it's, it's actually been really quite humbling when I go into something thinking that I'm going to be indignant about it and I hear an idea that is really good or might not be as good as what I think mine is, but has, has, has legs. Um, and part of that is this whole concept of, you know, letting go is tough for a guy like me that started. And so giving the shows away, um, we just did a huge pitch with one of my favorite brands and it would have been something that I would not have let somebody go and Mark ran with it and he did an amazing job and we got a little slice of the business and it's going to be a, a great, going to be a great customer for us. And for me to have given that away is really hard, but I'm still, I take a tremendous amount of joy in the fact that I could hand it to someone young that this will be a lifelong you know, relationship for him and for us. You know, back to the artist on stage, even though I didn't do the work, I'm super proud of the work that he did as a company and that he did with his leadership, so. All right, so let's get to some tougher stuff. <laughs> um, you didn't, you weren't intentionally a boss. No. Organization grows, gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. At one point, you realize, I actually have to become a leader instead of just kind of managing all of these, these things. So, what are the things that you've had to work on to become the kind of leader that you want to be? Uh, Self-awareness, probably number one. Um, my own honesty. Not that I'm a big fat liar, but um, you know, in asking others to be honest, uh, the white lies of work, being direct with somebody. Um, I have, uh, I was, I've been a pleaser my entire life. And I always thought that that was a really good thing because I think genuinely speaking, I'm a nice human. I enjoy great relationships with people and fun to hang out with. Um, but up until then, I was leading show imaging, but other people were doing the work of, of leading, right? I, I really wasn't. I was selling shows and I was busy and on airplanes all the time and worrying about status and things like that. It wasn't until we really started having those conversations where I said, oh my God, like I had never done a budget for the company. Like I had never, we didn't have a sales forecast. We were, I was not doing anything that was even resembling being a leader. And so when I talk about show imaging would have been okay, it would have been okay. And I would have been pushed out because I was incapable of doing the job because I didn't know what the job was. Self-awareness has been a really very humbling, really fantastic thing to, to learn. And I've had a long way to go on that journey, but I really, it's very rewarding to be able to say to someone something that is potentially going to hurt them. I mean, you know, part of my own personal therapy journey was, was learning that. On day one of, with my new therapist, he says, what do you want to get out of this? And I said, I'd really like to not hurt anybody. And he said, that's bullshit. 
<laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he says, that's what a child says. He says, you're rewarded by that at work, right? You don't want to hurt anybody at work. Like, this is not uncommon. Like, we're rewarded for our childlike behavior of not wanting to hurt people at work. You bring that home. Yeah, it's, sometimes we're going to have to tell people things that they need to hear, and it might hurt them. But that's actually what an adult does. An adult comes into something and says, man, I really don't want to tell you this, but like X, Y, and Z. And it's still insanely difficult for me, but it is when I, when I do it successfully and I tell something to someone, not to hurt them because I want to hurt them, but I tell them something that they need to hear, it's, it, those moments are the only time I actually feel like I'm leading. And um, I, you know, I, that will be, this will be a lifelong, it'll be a lifelong journey because to sort of change, it's not that I don't want to please people still, it's like, I don't like to, nobody likes telling people no. Um, you know, the, the joke always was that show imaging is SI, which is yes in Spanish. And so like, like Steve always said yes, show imaging always says yes. And so it's ironic that no has become the most powerful word in my vocabulary because no is a much harder word to say. And I actually believe that when I say no, or I need more information or any of the things that kind of go along that, that it's, it, that is, I believe that that's when I'm doing my best leading. Um, I am someone who struggles a lot, and not less now, but uh, when I was young, as being like a people pleaser. I grew up in a kind of a chaotic environment, and something that I, I adopted early on was just being like really, really nice and very accommodating. And these are like survival uh, strategies, right? And safety strategies. Yeah. But also being of service to people. So um, I've always had a lot of capability to make things happen. Like I'm just kind of good at figuring out how to make things work. Yeah. And really something that's plagued me a lot in my life is being too accommodating and helping people a lot and kind of getting taken advantage of. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're talking about. And one of the things I've really had to focus on as I've gotten older and the stakes are higher. So we have, uh, Monica and I have three kids. Um, we're a blended family, so we've got kids from either one of our relationships that we've come together. Uh, my mom lives with me now because my dad uh, is quite ill, lives in a home. Uh, I've got a sister, uh, I've got a home, I've got a company with 30 people who rely on me. I can't be indulgent the way I was before where I let my own fear of rejection, my own desire to be accepted govern my actions. So it's not that I don't want to help people out because I love helping people and it's not that I don't want to accommodate people because I love accommodating people, but I love those things because they make me feel safe and accepted. And the hardest thing I've ever had to do as a, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was get very, very comfortable with saying no to people, um, with not returning phone calls, with putting up boundaries. And it's been very difficult work. So I apply a philosophy to it. Um, have you ever heard of people kind of talk about authentic leadership? Yes. I laugh my ass off. <laughs> I laugh my ass off. And anyone who listens to podcasts knows I'll talk about this a lot. Um, whenever I'm working, very often when I'm working with a leader and I'm poking on something that they're uncomfortable about, they'll go to like, well, that's just me being authentic. They're like, no, that's your preference. And there's a difference between authenticity and preference. In my perspective, preference feels good all of the time. It always feels good to lean into your preference. Preference feels good, and it's not always the right thing to do. It doesn't mean it's never the right thing to do. Like, being accommodating, it can be the right thing right. to do. You but know? not always. Not always, right? 
Um, preference feels good 100% of the time. It's your natural default because it feels good to do, but it doesn't always have the right application as a leader. Authenticity never feels good because it's a learned skill that you have to apply. It never ever feels good or rarely feels good, but it's almost always the right thing to do. And so this is what I mean by that. Very few people wake up in the morning and are like, I can't wait to fire so-and-so. I love firing people. Or I can't wait to give someone terrible news yeah. or give them negative feedback. Yeah. Very few people get up and are like, oh. Most people have learned the skills in which to do that well. That's what I call being authentic. And I think outside of anything that crosses a moral or ethical boundary, anything can become authentic. It just means you've learned a tool, like you've learned a skill, and you've done it enough that you've made it your own. So you're doing your version of that. Like, I don't get up in the morning and be like, hmm, what do I want to do today? I want to eat a piece of cake, and I want to give someone terrible feedback. That's I'm like... I have to give someone really tough feedback and then I'm going to eat a piece of cake afterwards yeah. so I feel better about it. I have to like steal myself up to do it. I have to think about how I'm going to have the conversation. I don't like doing it, but that's me being authentic. And authenticity isn't a default space. That's what preference is. Authenticity is doing something that actually is outside of your comfort zone, learning the skills and then making it your own. Yeah. And I encourage leaders everywhere. It's like, know where your weak spots are, know where your defaults are, where does your preference not work, and then learn the associated skills with doing things that are uncomfortable for you in an authentic way. And interestingly, the, the authenticity, for me anyway, if I'm, doing, if I'm doing it right, like if I have to deliver something where normally I would, you know, I have a, you, as you all know, I have a bad habit in the past of saying, I do this too, but you need to stop doing this. Right, right. Like, and so now it's, I need you to stop doing this and whatever the conversation is. The feeling afterward, for me anyway, of knowing that I actually delivered the right information directly is, is leaves me much more, I don't know if fulfilled's the right word, but it leaves me feeling like I've done what I've needed to do and it's a much easier feeling than it hanging over me, you know, the way a lie does. You know, back to what I was saying about that. Like with the, to, to be honest is, you know, especially in a case like that, it feels much better to say, I've, I've done what I needed to do. And self-awareness, honesty, tying to something you said about boundary setting, like I've never had boundaries. And so I'm engaged in a world right now, both personally and professionally, where, where I'm setting a lot more boundaries. And it's difficult, but it gets easier every time I do it. And the feeling when I've done it, and then if someone crosses the boundary, of actually being able to say, hey, this didn't work for me. I set these boundaries. This is what I didn't like. And then I can walk away. It actually is, you know, um, that's that's probably the most important personal thing. And it's personal because I'm doing it, you know, I'm doing it at work and, at, and you know, sort of outside of work. But many, at Shomajing, many of my, my best friends work at my side. And so with your help, I'm learning to navigate the side, you know, the, the two sides of that and boundaries have become a really important part of that. It, but it still sucks. It absolutely still it's sucks. Nothing fun about it. Especially when it's especially when it's a twenty year friend or whatever, right? You know? Our general manager, we were at each other's weddings. It's kinda of hard to go like, hey, I need this to not happen again and and him to do it. He's much better than I am, so well, and, and this is the thing, going back to authenticity, it's like, the more you do it, the better it feels because you learn your own way of doing it. Yeah. 
So the first time someone like, let's just say boundary setting comes up, it's going to feel fake because you're going to be like, maybe of notes, but like, hey, you please respect my, it feels weird and robotic. You do it the second time, it will feel that way. The third time will feel a little better. Fourth, the way that I try and phrase it for people is if we operate on preference alone, apply that to, to riding a bike. Very few people, if anyone hops on a bike for the first time, and just rides off. Yeah. Almost everyone hops on a bike and falls over. Very few people then go, well, that felt inauthentic to me, so I'm never gonna ride a bike again. There's something in it for you when you're a kid to learn how to ride a bike. It's the freedom, the mobility, all your friends are doing it, all that. So you get on, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again. Conceptually, everyone who rides a bike rides a bike the exact same way, the kind of the concept yeah. of it. But in real reality, every person who rides a bike rides it in a slightly, if not radically different way. Some people casually ride, some people get into road biking, mountain biking, like all the different things. Yeah. You ride, you see, however it is, different kinds of bikes. Whatever skill you learn that's helping you do something that feels, that's outside of your scope of comfort, the more you do it, the better you become at it. But it still doesn't mean you like doing it. You still have to do it and intentionally do it, but it makes all the difference in how you engage with people. That's a great analogy. <laughs> I mean, it, it for me anyway, it's like that with every relationship too. Like my, my boundaries are different with different people right now. And so that actually really does speak to me because interestingly, someone that's never seen me put a boundary up, it's almost like I'm starting over with that person because they don't expect it. Whereas there's people that I've not been trying it out on, but there's been opportunities for me to do it and I can sort of a year or two in this process where it's become much more natural with them. And so that's been a really fascinating process to try to navigate. So let's talk about what I, it's something that showing machine is doing that I'm like fascinated with, because I believe you're doing such an honest and good job of it, which is, I know the industry is kind of typically dominated by a, a, a gender of person, a yeah. person who comes from a specific background. So you're putting a huge amount of effort in, and, and legitimate effort into uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. And it, it's not just about gender or um, cultural background or identity. Uh, what I found fascinating is also, and, and I love this, is also you're including uh, mental health and, and neurodivergence as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I have goosebumps right now. Um, I have a son um, that's on the autistic spectrum. Um, very high performing, he's gonna have a great life. And, and he's, an, he's an amazing kid, he's super smart with computers, and a really special, really special young man. Um, and as we, as a company, started to look at what this meant, I went back to something that was most important, and that is that I desire, my vision for the company to be a company for its people. If that's true, the people have to feel like they belong to the company, right? They belong a part of the community. We're not, we don't use the word family because I don't want to compete with, with people's family, right? I kind of messed that up in my own life. And so the last thing I wanted to do is like, ah, she opened it to be family, like some people still say that. I believe we're a community. And I believe we're a community that cares deeply for each other, but when we go home to our, our loved ones, that, that that is a separate and unique place to be. To belong and to be storytellers and experience builders it can't be just a bunch of people that look like me or just my friends. And so certainly the company started with me hiring my friends because I of course wanted to 
bring my friends to work with me. And I wanted to do that. And, and like in the beginning, before I really knew what I was doing, I didn't realize that I was creating a community of people just like me. I think I have a cool story. I think that I enjoy telling stories. Put a cocktail on me, I'm the best storyteller on the planet. But if we're to be storytellers for all, and, and we're to be a truly be a company that speaks to everybody, it can't just be people like me that are telling the story. And what I learned is that it's not that easy to go find different voices in this industry. You know, everybody says, hire more diversely. You betcha. Where are they? Where are they? And guess what? It's really hard to find people from underrepresented communities that want to play in the sandbox. You know why? Because there's not a lot of community theaters in those neighborhoods. And the churches don't have big fancy sound systems like the mega churches do, and lighting systems. And they don't have MacBook Pros sitting around with video at Final Cut Pro on it so they can learn, learn video editing. And they can't afford to go to concerts. And so like, how the heck are they gonna break into you know, an industry like this where it's easy for me to say, you don't have to be technical, you can be an events person, you, you still have to have an avenue to get here. And that was a really difficult moment for me. And it really didn't happen until COVID, I'm almost embarrassed. Like that's, we always talked about it. But at that point, we were still just going to the universities, which still have relatively not the best diversity on the planet. And so, yes, we were trying, but we weren't trying nearly as hard. And so we sat down at COVID and we did our core values and did that, and we really started talking about, okay, how are we going to do this? And like, we're doing some cool stuff. We're, you know, we have a partnership um, that we're starting with the, we met, we bid on LA Pride. We didn't get it. I was really bummed. We do San Diego Pride. But as part of the LA Pride, uh, we were working with a partner that I had met in college. I hadn't talked to her in 20 years. She found us on LinkedIn and said, oh, I see the work you guys are doing. Do you want to go bid pride with me? Like, all day long. She heard uh, a couple of us talking about some of the partnerships and early pipeline development. And she said, oh, my friend works for the state of California. You should talk to her. And so we had this amazing conversation. There's all these apprenticeship programs where the state is working with companies like us, but also some of the bigger, you know, PRG and some of the big heavy hitting production companies. And what they're doing is they're actively going into neighborhoods and community centers, providing, basically providing help with resumes, giving them access to like just about all the tools that companies like us can't keep up with. Like the business side of it is where a company like, you know, a growing company is going to fail. So they do all that work. They help place people into your company. They still stay involved with the management level. And the goal is, you know, we commit to six months with the hope that, that we'll employ these people full time. And it was like six or seven of these programs. We had no idea until we started digging around. And then you, you tie into that. We do a lot of work in Montana as part of that festival. And there's more, of, more work that we're starting to do out there. You know, Montana is a really interesting place because it's fairly, you know, it's a fairly Caucasian place, but there's, there's tons of indigenous tribes that are all dying to get into the industry and work on like, you know, Yellowstone is filmed there and the two spinoffs, there's a ton of filming happening up there. And so we're now tying with the state of Montana, they have a program called Accelerate, which is a program that is basically funded quick training to get people, basically, you're a nice person, you want to work hard, take this 10 hour course and you learn how to be a PA for film, or you'll learn how to go be a you know, an event manager for a concert. 
Um, and so we're sponsoring 10 students from the University of Montana to come to the Pulsar Conference in a couple of weeks, which is our industry's magazine of, you know, it's earnings, box office earnings, but it's like the biggest gathering of live touring professionals. Eight of, eight of the 10 people are, are women. Uh, one of them has never really come to a big city. She comes from a, an indigenous tribe. We had a great conversation with her. Um, her we're funding her flight and basically her instructor taught her how to book a ticket. Like this is start to finish. She's super nervous to come to LA, like Beverly Hills. But for me, we've laid out a program where they're gonna they're gonna load in and load up technically one day, and then we've arranged meetings. My buddy's an agent for one of the big agencies in LA. They're gonna meet with the agent. They're gonna meet with an experiential company owner. They're meeting with this amazing woman that we met um, who curates uh, a digital art presentation um, called Luminex in downtown LA. So she's gonna come over and talk to them about not necessarily just art, but art at the intersection of technology and working with cities and municipalities to take over these neighborhoods. Um, they're gonna meet with us, they're gonna meet with our creative director. With this, this point being, there is a world where you can be a professional, you can make a living, you can make a career out of this, you can raise a family, and whether they wanna stay in Montana or not, um, we're finding that there's, there's really a lot out there. You know, There's a school, we just did a virtual hiring fair with a, with a trade group called uh, Trade Education trade college called Full Sail. And the diversity was amazing. It was, it was when I got the report back, um, it was many women, many people of color, many people from many different backgrounds. And for me, it's not a statistic, it's, it's back to the storytelling. Like if we can all tell stories from, from these different points of view, I think it, it creates a community that people want to be a part of. Um, and everybody needs to be doing it, we really are, and we're enjoying the process. I'm enjoying the process. That's where I'm devoting most of my time right now. Well, it, this goes to something you and I were, were talking about. And let's say there's a business there, uh, whatever business, so it's like a plumbing business. And they, they want to do this. They're like, we want to have a more diverse workforce. We really want to be more inclusive. We do want to have a more equitable way that we're running our company. Awesome. At the end of the day, you're still a plumbing company. Right? And, and or whatever the company is, right? The difference between wanting to do it and trying to hire people from different backgrounds and like really failing at doing it time and time again and being successful in the way that you are, I believe is about bringing someone in or bringing a group of people in who that's their purpose. That's the function of their job, to partner with people who they actually play in that playground. So how are you partnered with the, with the state? Instead of just have people being like, oh, you know, like we're gonna have an in-house you know, group of people who will uh, do this at, like 10% of the time in their workday, hiring people with the specificity of it. And I'll give you an example from our world, like um, the podcast, I got some great, great, great feedback from, uh, I will leave the person that name, but if you're listening, I really appreciate it where they're like, hey, as a person of color and as a woman, I would love to see more women or people of color on the show. And I was like, my response was like, A, thank you so much. B, is there anyone you recommend? Because it's really just randomly inviting people to your podcast. People are going to be like, who the hell are you? Right? Like, who is this person? What is this podcast? And people's time is precious and where they put their personal profile on someone's podcast, Matt, and it should matter to people. Yeah. And I wasn't trying to be defensive. I was literally like, please recommend someone because, you know, our, our podcast 
does trend white male like heavily and and we do want to tell these stories and create this platform so I thought about it and I thought about it and I was like you know what instead of me just doing the hey I know this person from this punk band who has this interesting thing or I worked with this person let's get that person this person um, we hired someone to specifically do guest acquisition and here's how we want to look at our acquisition pipeline of guests this is the experience we want them to have this is how it has to go and it's an investment on our end and the reason I'm saying this uh, to you is like as a coach who sees a lot of, um, of diversity inclusion and equity programs what stands out to me about show imaging and, and the work that you're doing is creating like real dedicated partnerships of people who are already experts in that who are guiding your process rather than trying to have like do it off the side of your desk you know like doing it off the side of your desk is well intentioned yeah just like I'm well-intentioned, like, oh, let's get a bunch of different people. Yeah. Instead, it's like, you know what, I just need to make the investment of someone else who's going to do that for the company. And I really encourage people in this space is hire experts, create expert programs internally, or get consultants, or part as you did, like partner with expert groups outside who guide your process. Because at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're doing a production company. Right. And that's kind of the goal. Right. And you want this thing to happen, but you're not an expert in doing yeah. it. Well, and when we started talking about hiring, you know, I put my foot down and I said, we're not just going to hire, we're not just going to hire the first application that comes in. And what was happening is I was stalling progress of hiring people. I'm like, we can't hire John Smith because he's a white male. Mm-hmm. We haven't done enough. And so I sort of got a little, again, indignant Steve, and so we had to sort of go back on that and go, well, what do we really need to do? We need to be posting inside to make sure that we're truly giving people inside the company a chance to grow. We need to look outside of just being on LinkedIn and Indeed, right? Because again, that's gonna skew away from, and so it forced us to at least take a step back and say, how are we hiring? And so the conversation, I think the one thing that I had, I I was taught, and it took me a while for it to catch, and that was, I, you know, have a design, I'm a fixer. I, I can make things happen. It's like, I want to flip the switch. I want to do whatever and just fix this overnight. And, and things like this, the best advice I got was, you just have to start. You just have to start. And it's not always going to be enough for everybody. And it's, it will be challenged and I will be challenged as to whether I'm just doing this because I have to or whatever. And like, you know, all I know is what's inside me. That's all I can say. All, it's important to me. I talk about it a lot. I try to follow through with it. I am willing to be wrong, but we had to start somewhere. I had to start somewhere. And it's going to be a, like many other things we've talked about, it's going to be a journey that will take all of the time. There's never going to be a day, I don't believe, where we're going to go, that's it. I just finished the book. Yeah, <laughs> like, we're good. You know, I, just, I don't see it. Like, if you look at the history of, of, of the root of these things, right? And one of the reasons I like the word belonging so much, more than DEI, because DEI is important, right? The, the, the words behind those letters are important, but it's become such a thing. And now B is part of most of them. Belonging was a word that we were using for a long time because I think that belonging captures the things we don't know. Yeah. Like neurodiversity is really important. I think that we, showmaging is really well poised. Um, and there's two things about neurodiversity that I think are, are really important to me, neurodivergent is the, is the word that I'm learning, is that there's, an, there's a place for employees and we have at least two or three people that I know for a fact because I've spoken with them um, 
that they really appreciate the fact that they can walk in and talk about it. You know, like there's an employee in our company that is, is I, I love him. And he walked in on day two and said, I just need you to know, I have a really hard time socially, but I'm working on it and I want you to know that and I want you to know it's important to me and I want, I would like your help and the company's help to have a space here. And he's, you know, we're really lucky. He has the ability to walk in and say, this is what I need. And we're not, the beauty of this, we're not trying to just make his job work for him. We're trying to use that as a model to how we can make the company work because there's things that we're learning about it. The other side of that is we're not just doing it for our employees. We're, we're trying to challenge, trying to challenge our customers. You know, we there's this group called Culture City, um, and we found them interesting group. I think they're out of Alabama, and so they have a sensory activation vehicle. And so we've kind of been going back and forth. One of the things about events is, you know, for for neurodivergent people, events are tough. Flashing lights, loud, like loud, lots of people. Un territory that you're not familiar with. It's like literally everything that's tough, I believe. Like I can't know what it feels like, but like everything I've, I've learned and everything I know about my son, events are a really tough place. So we we brought, we agreed to pay this company at our own expense to, to bring their trailer out to San Diego to do a couple of the big commencement ceremonies, one for UCSD and one for the University of San Diego. Because we, like, it seemed to me that that was a place, like if you're, one son or daughter is graduating, but you have another son or older, like whatever, that might be a tough place for them to go. Um, and it was really amazing, the feedback that we got. We parked the trailer out there, we had a volunteer staff it. Um, they have these really cool kits that we would check out and the kits have noise canceling headphones and a, a card, like a feeling card, so you could, a child that doesn't communicate well could point to their feeling, a fidget toy. And so we would check those out or if a parent needed to take their kid into a child into an air-conditioned trailer that had really cool sensory you know things tactile things like they're designed to like just go kind of get out of the noise and uh, the feedback was amazing and it it wasn't just for show it's us trying to figure out how, how are we going to challenge our customers to admit that that's something that we really need to be doing we need to be doing that at every every event not just commencements how are we going to do that at concerts like how do i tell muse that they can't use strobes you know what is the solution for that to be to make an event like that and that's you know we're, i don't think we're quite quite there yet but i think that as a company if if we're truly trying to be a company that is a place that that, that all belong we don't necessarily know what that is and it's i think that that's going to continue to expand as as we learn more things right we weren't talking about you know the autism spectrum even 10 years ago like we are now like, like part of this is it's it's new, so like, yeah. Well, and, and everything you're talking about, it's so. I, mean, I think about stuff uh, with mental health and how many people, yeah. even today, although mental health is such a bigger part of the conversation now uh, culturally, people still hide like their anxiety or their depression, yeah. and are embarrassed to talk about it. And I would love it if we can get to a place where it's like, oh yeah, like you know it. Anyone who lives with a, a spectrum of mental health uh, concerns can work in this place and, and feel supported. As a business owner, you could look at it as, well, geez, that's like a lot to ask me as a business owner. Like, I'm just trying to like make a living for myself and make a living for my family and for the people who work here. Because I don't want to speak about it in this like obtuse way where it's like every company, blah, blah. It's like, it's a lot to ask business owners, but it's more to ask society to create scenarios where 
there are massive segments of society that are marginalized, feel like there isn't hope, there isn't resources. So what's the middle ground to, it's a lot to ask for employers, but yeah, like most employers, if they're like, and there was a clear path to me getting there, I would totally do it, I just don't know what the path is, to saying, no, we're we're not going to lock all these people up. There's got to be a middle path. And that idea of starting with, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to start. Going back to what you said, just start and figure it out and partner with people and learn. Yeah, and advocate. I mean, back to authenticity. It's hard. It's hard. It's terrible. It's It's, it's hard. It's hard to challenge your customer. We're challenging our customers to not use plastic water bottles, right? You know how hard it is to tell a festival that, that... sells 50 to 100,000 water bottles on a, on a show not to use plastic and use metal, which are nine times. Like, the good news is we're working with people that want to do that too. Like, it's hard. We're challenging the university. We, we just did the home, homecoming uh, for a university and they tied it to a 5K and so we're on a call and they're like, okay, we're going to have 15 pallets of water bottles dropped off and you store those backstage. And like, this is all university people and I'm the contractor. And I said, can I just ask a question? Does the university not have a sustainability, you know, plastic-free thing? And like crickets, crickets. I'm like, I know it's more expensive, but we can either bring a water truck in, and we've got these really cool sinks, and people use reusable, or we can get boxed water or aluminum water. But like, it seems to me that if we're buying 15 pallets of water, that maybe we should rethink that. And in those moments, it's sometimes it's hard. It's hard to speak up. What happened? Of course they did it. Like. Yeah, we bought a well, we brought a water truck in. We had, like it was, I didn't even love this, but like their choice was to use compostable, you know, single use compostable cups. So at least we were doing we were we were adding to their compost program. Were they appreciative of it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it feels I mean, listen, it feels good. It's scary in the moment, but all they can say is no. I think that's the reminder for me. What am I scared of? They're gonna say no? Well, that we've only ever been, King's only ever been fired by one client. And it was like catastrophically fired, like really fired by a client. Like, and I'll say it sucked from a revenue perspective, but it felt goddamn good from right. a morals perspective where I was like, no, man, like you suck. You, what you're teaching, like what you're saying publicly and what you're doing behind the scenes sucks. Yeah. And my job is to hold that up to you and be like, hey, man, don't do this thing. Right. And then your job, apparently, is to fire me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you really didn't want to do that. <laughs> but it was, it was a good firing. Because it's like, I talked to my team about it a lot. And, and I've referenced it on this podcast, like, kind of subtly a few times. Where it's like, I want my company to, to have, like, grow and have good revenue and all that stuff. But I would rather get fired by someone who's truly, all day long, truly unethical and shitty that have the, the amount of revenue that would have come all, that. all day long. And, you know, as I say this, it's like, I also know what it was like, the gut, the, the pull of my stomach when we got fired, it's like, where are we going to get that money back? How am I going to do this? Oh my God. And you know what? We might not have been able to do it. That might've been the end of the company, but that's the game. You know, like that's the risk you take. Uh, and I, I'm saying it with some swagger now, years later, I'm like, we, we overcame it, but it's like, I would rather face down that kind of challenge than the challenge at the end of the night where I'm like, I'm really doing some bullshit here and I don't feel proud of it. I, I, I have nothing to add to it because I, I, as a leader, as the leader that ultimately I'm responsible 
to put, you know, to, to feed the roughly 200 families. Like I still take that. There is not a night I don't go to bed and that's not heavy, right? That, that it's a responsibility. Like they say, you have, you get married, you have a child, like these things in life that are, are difficult until you have responsibility to make sure that you're taking care of families. It's a, it's a level of stress that I, I, I can't even explain. And I, I, it's an honor. And it's also something that is, drives my almost every decision now is what happens if I mess this up? What are the, like my decision-making paradigm is what happens? All right, so we're heading into the, the close of our, of our interview. I'm gonna ask you three questions and they're going to increase in difficulty. Is there anything that you want to say as we're closing off? Anywhere you want to point people if they want to check out show imaging? Anything that you want to hype up at all? Yeah, I, A, I appreciate being here. I always enjoy conversation with you and it's, it's, it's fun to be able to talk about the company. I'm, I'm insanely proud of, I'm insanely proud of what we've become and I'm even more proud of the fact that we're working really hard to hold ourselves accountable to being better every day. We're always going to want to do better. I always want to do better. And my vision for the company is that we really are a special place to be. And we're not going to be for everybody. And I'm okay with that. I think that once I admitted that, that I wasn't going to make everybody happy. I'm not going to make every staff member happy. I'm not going to make every customer happy. But that I'm comfortable with the fact that we're building a community and a group of customers that, that want to be partnered with us. And uh, I, we don't lose a lot of customers. Um, we have, like you, we have a really great retention of our customers, and we have great retention with our staff. We really are very lucky. People have chosen and chosen to be here, and, and that's it's the most humbling thing in my life that people believe in what I think the company stands for, and I think they believe that even though uh, there's still things that we have to fix, they believe that we're going to do it, and that's a, that's a really amazing thing. Like When I fall asleep with the stress of, of that, what I really fall asleep is, is how lucky I am to have this group of people to work with every day. It's, it's really a lot of fun. I said at the beginning, what do I do? I, I have the best job on the planet. Like, I really love what I do. And it's hard, and it's more difficult the bigger we get, but um, it's really, it's an amazing journey. We have a website, showimaging.com. Uh, we don't use lots of words online, which is ironic, because those of you that know me, I love words. There's no shortage of words when I talk, but uh, you know, we, I think what I'm most proud of is, is we, we try to post pictures of the cool stuff we get to do, and it's really a lot of fun, so. All right, yeah, and we'll put links to everything uh, in, the, in the episode, make sure everyone can see it. All right, three questions. So through your journey as a leader, you've kind of been this unintentional leader. You start this business, it grows, and then you make a decision, okay, I need to start becoming an actual leader here. So in this process of like really learning the art of leadership and how you want to position yourself and how you want to lead, what's one thing that you've learned about yourself that you're like, I am so delighted to learn that about myself. Like I'm so psyched that I know that about myself. And what's one thing that you learned about yourself that you didn't like and you've been working on? I'm I, referencing something I said earlier I'm really proud of myself that I have the ability to have a difficult conversation with someone. Mm -hmm. That is something that was led to the failure of my marriage, mm -hmm. that I wasn't willing to have those conversations. I own that. To acknowledge that. Uh, I don't love, <laughs> I don't love that the people pleasing part of me um, has pushed me down a path. I hope this makes you happy and I mean it honestly. Uh, the self-deprecating side 
that I immediately went to anytime I was uncomfortable. Sort of looking back on just how much I've done that in my life. We didn't talk a lot of personal, but I was I was born with a spinal tumor and you know had my first surgery too. And sort of my first ten years of life, I was always in a cast or glasses, braces, and so something you said resonated with me. My I've never been comfortable in my own skin. I never really thought I was an attractive person. I sort of always felt like I was the sort of dorky guy that limped and had had everything wrong with him. The that fear sort of leading me down a path of self-deprecation is it's really a bummer because I think I probably missed out on a lot of, of really good years had I had I been willing to seek help earlier on. So okay. good. Okay. Thank you for, for that vulnerability. All right, second super hard question. This one is tough. What are your if you think of three bands that you would die to do production for, like where you're like, these are the bands. <laughs> what are the three uh, bands? You can only be three bands. Okay. What are the three where you're like, these are the acts that I have to do production for? Muse. I brought them up earlier. I'm not a, I, like, I really like the Muse. I don't even know if it's that. I think it's, I think it's just Muse. I think it's Muse. Um, their shows are unreal. Like, have you seen that? They're fantastic shows. I mean, and they're artistic. They mix the light sound video, like all of it put together, just something that's, that's really, really, for me, that would be, that'd be a lot of fun. That'd be amusing. That would be amusing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we did set the tone for that, didn't we? Um, it's hard because I don't want to just give you the ones I'm a fan, I'm a fan of. Um, artistically speaking, boy, you aren't kidding. My mind's going crazy. Uh, I think Odessa. We're actually doing an Odessa show for them. Uh, their shows are are amazing. Like the electronic space is, I think, doing the best stuff right now. They're really, they're really taking art and they're mixing it with not just lights and video, but they're going back to some scenic elements and some really interesting mixed. I don't want to just sell speakers and do that. Like I really think this concept of creating something that's back to the storytelling, back to the creative, that tells a story. Um, the you know the old we used to listen to albums right from start to finish, and most of us aren't consuming music that way anymore. And so I find that at the concert, the the full concerts that I'm able to see, I'm most interested in the ones that are trying to go back to tell a story from start to finish, right? Because we're listening to a song on Spotify rather than like oh. And we're not looking at album cover work anymore. So, um, so I would say I would say Odes or something along those lines. Um, and I, I, it has to be YouTube for me. Mm. Um, you know, sort of Joshua Tree for me was probably one of the most iconic. Even though I tend to listen to more singer songwritery, like anybody that's listening, like, do you even know who YouTube is, Steve? Yes, I know who YouTube is seen a lot of their shows. <laughs> I, I can't say that I'm a YouTube fanboy, but I was always always impressed with sort of the, the ability for them to, A, have an artistic stadium set, but also I kind of like, I like the, the journey of what those stories mean, right? And they're still storytelling. And I think that, I, I just think as a group of individuals, they've done a lot of good for the world too. So I think that, again, wanting to work with people that I think are doing, I don't know them, but, um, I, I certainly have been captivated with their journey, so. Heck yeah, awesome. All right, third question, this one is, is tough. So many leaders 
and especially I'd say like leaders who are like founders of companies or owners of companies. Um, when COVID came, we all had that kind of like, oh shit moment. <laughs> and that oh shit moment caused a lot of like introspection, hopefully positive change and all that. But now there's, there's going to be a whole other line of leaders coming up with all of their companies that want good things. Like, oh, we want to be a more inclusive employer, or we want to have better business practices, or we want to be able to say no to business. So they get caught in the same cycle that you and I, thousands of other leaders have been caught in. So what is any advice that you have for a leader who is leading a rapidly growing company who has a lot of well-wishing about doing things a better way, but is caught up in the grind of just like doing, executing, creating. What's your piece of advice that you could give them that would help them look in the mirror and make better better decisions? Well, we talked about this earlier. I mean, this was actually easy for me. It may be a, it may be a non-answer, but if you're not uncomfortable, you're not doing it. Um, for me, I'm scared to death. I'm like, I don't have, I'm trying not to use the word imposter because I think it's a, it's a, it's a very in vogue word right now, this whole concept of being an imposter. I'm not worried about being an imposter because I know what I, I can know what I stand for. I also know when I'm uncomfortable is when I'm doing my best work. When I'm uncomfortable with an answer. You know, one of the things that the students have presented to a lot of these universities, like who Shonjin is, and every single one of the classes I've been asked about what we're doing. And every single time I am freaking terrified that I'm out of my league. Or that I'm not doing enough or that whatever, right? And and there never will be enough. But I know for me, when I'm in that moment, when I'm when I'm uncomfortable, and not just because I'm vulnerable, but like if I'm, I have to be willing to try. Um, it's this whole concept of allyship, right? So a lot of a lot of people are claiming their allies, and I'm I'm reading a book right now that really resonates with me, and, and that is I don't believe that I get to claim if I'm an ally or not. I think that that's a title that will be bestowed upon me or the company when when we are. I mean, I don't know that a, that a white man can claim that they're an ally. I know that I'm, I seek to be an ally at all. I seek to be a, a person that allows himself to be uncomfortable in a situation to encourage not just me, but the company to do, and our customers to do more. And so to, to others that are out there, it's, it's difficult to say seek discomfort, but I think that you have to seek discomfort first. Awesome, man. Well, this has been a great conversation. Uh, two hours flew by. Uh, <laughs> has it been two hours? Yeah, man. It has. Uh, so as we're closing off, uh, any last words? No. It's been great. I really enjoy I enjoy chatting and I enjoy learning. Uh, this is, these are always great conversations and I always take, I always get to take something away. So this is no different. So. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, everyone, please check out Show Imaging. Uh, they are a great company, um, do great work, and, and are just a wonderful group of people. And with that, I will see you in the outro. Mike, drop the beat. One,